Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how a story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier while you do those things. To that end I often get listeners first pages of their work and I give feedback on it sometimes I just talk about where I'm at with my own writing and sometimes I talk to authors and sundry people associated with the business of making books and stories and ask them hey what's the deal uh, today is one of those episodes. I'm speaking to the author, Adrian Tchaikovsky. He's a science fiction and fantasy author. He's written loads of books. We we talk a bit about his uh, his consistency, I suppose. He, he uses the term prolific in, uh, I think, you know, alludes to the fact that sometimes that's not seen always as a, a good thing by people, but I just want to make it clear, I'm really in awe of uh, how, uh, you know, he, he's produced, uh, you know, books, I think, I think every year for over, a, for well over a decade. Um, I just think it's really cool and fascinating and clearly comes from someone who is into his craft and lives it and to a certain extent enjoys it and um we just had a really great talk about all his books and the background to them including uh well we mainly mainly you'll hear like yeah I'm not gonna I don't need to give you a blow by blow let's retain some of the some of the magic of novelty and you can you can hear but um even if you're not into sff uh there's still loads there about craft and about how we create stories and what they're for um and his own experiences of doing things like creating a world and uh why he writes and it's it was a, i really enjoyed the chat basically I mean, I'm never going to start one of these by saying I, I hated that. It was like pulling teeth. It was grim from beginning to end. Um, but I've not had to yet because I've enjoyed talking to people and I find them interesting. And that's why I do this. Like I, I'm it's a self-selecting group because they're people who in the main I've approached and say, can I speak to you? Because I want to, because I'm really interested and um, I'm interested in what you write. And so that was the that was the happy uh, setup to this, uh, and um, I, I I'm gonna say that I have put a couple of links to Adrian's books, specifically some of the books that we talk about in today's episode, in the show notes. So if you want to click on them, those links, you can go and grab a copy yourself um there's ebooks and physical versions of them i should say the a particular one that we talk about that's coming up at the time of re- of recording is not out but possibly by the time you listen to this might be which is city of last chances which comes out uh, in the uk at least uh, at the beginning ish of december um that there's a link there'll be a pre-order 
link to that. It's a lovely thing to do to pre-order a book. Not just because of the reasons that you'll hear authors say. It really supports my career. It's It, it really helps. God, pre-orders really help. Um, That's probably true to an extent, as much as, you know, any... But that's not a great... You know, you might just feel like, well, I, I'm not... It's not my business to necessarily be supporting authors careers i just want to read some books um so if you're entirely motivated by self-interest um i've having pre-ordered books now the the lovely thing is you either get to go into a shop and say i've ordered a book can you can you give it to me please and they go here you are and you, you're collecting something that's put aside for you or if you've ordered online from any of the the many outlets out there, uh, then the book drops through your letterbox, which I know, like in this day and age, shouldn't be as exciting as I'm making it out to be. But the fact that a book gets, and sometimes that comes before that official day of release, right? And you just, I just hear a thump and I go downstairs and on my mat is there's the book that I've been waiting for. Or if you pre-order an ebook, then it just appears in your library. And I just that I mean, sorry to be so I maybe I should be more cool and enigmatic about these things, but it's really exciting to me. Oh my gosh. I remember when I I go yeah, I, I read uh, uh Piranesi, is that how you pronounce it? Um the, uh, and I'd been waiting for that book for a while and it landed on my mat and I was just like, I'm just cancelling today. I'm just going to go upstairs and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start reading it. And I read it all in one sitting. I inhaled it. I, I had a lovely time. That's Susanna Clark's book. And so, you know, as much as authors deserve uh, your patronage and support, I think it's just an act of rational self-interest, which all economists listening will will, will hopefully nod in approval that that's how the free market should work. The, the, the conjunction of multiple rationally self-interest. No, I'm look. It's just great. Anyway, this not what today's about. Today's about talking talking to Adrian and hearing his thoughts, and it's genuinely really interesting. Um, and I think uh, it was also really nice, I'll say before I hand you over to him, that um, really nice to hear someone talk about why they write and, you know, not reflexively fall into the position of like, well, you know, you have to foreground the characters and it has to be about a single character having a specific arc. And it can be like, I want to create a world because that's what science fiction and fantasy does best for me and I want to create really interesting worlds uh, and that's my well, how I start that's you know that's what he you know talks about and I think it's really important and this is exactly why I want to talk to other authors on their show is to get these ex perspectives and just to be reminded one it's not all about me Although I don't disagree with what he's saying at all, but it, I, I think there's a danger that, you know, I can only represent my own viewpoint and uh, 
because I have such a hypnotic charisma, you might be bamboozled into thinking that is the one true way. But also, what you can bring to the table as a writer is, is, is often what you would do differently to, you know, received wisdom on something. And that means when you write the thing, you know, I talked about this in a previous episode, this idea of you, you know, to a certain extent, a writing bad take uh, when pursued with passion and bullheadedness uh, can actually drive your craft in a way that makes you create books that no one else is offering. And then you can take that to the bank because you are genuinely offering something that isn't out there. And if readers can find that and go, oh, this is like a new colour I've discovered. And my eyes are having to grow special receptors to be able to perceive it. And my brain is making new shapes to be able to process it. What's going on with me? Like that, that's a awesome and it may there may be people out there who never knew that they wanted what you're offering and until but it's really unlikely that as a human being the things that you want to create and the things that you care about are unprecedented amongst humans and there won't be other people out there for whom the book you want to make isn't the key that tessellates perfectly with the, the lock in their heart you know it, it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to pursue assiduously I don't know what assiduous means by the way I don't even know if that's a word but I've said it anyway um it's it's it's, it's a wonderful thing to pursue uh to pursue I, I just, you know you can cut adverbs can't you i think it's a wonderful thing to pursue something that you care about sincerely and to do it um with your throw your whole body at the mark um because i think i think it just at the very very least it produces an interesting failure and i think at best it contributes substantially to the canon of literature um adrian by the way if you're not familiar with his work has also he's won several uh arthur c clark awards for his science fiction and his children of time novels have been hugely successful not that success is any marker of um you know why i get people on here but just so you know those are some things to, I think I've summed everything up if you uh, like the show and you'd like to support it and uh, don't have any advertisers on the show but we do have a coffee page you can click uh, uh, there's a link to that in the show notes as well you can click through that drop me a few beans to keep the lights on um, I don't know why I said beans in that way um, also I'm an author if you're interested in reading what I've written uh, I've got several novels the Honours in the Ice House, and my new book, which is called uh, Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It, which is my sort of journey through the world of anxiety and panic attacks and trying to figure out why uh, I, I, I was getting so anxious. And there's lots of science in there, and hopefully it's entertaining, as well as being scientifically rigorous to the point of having 
I think over 40 pages of references. Um, that's it. I think I'm done. Not with the podcast, just with the intro you'll be pleased to hear. Um, I hope you're looking after yourselves and keeping well. If you're not, then I hope that the following conversation sort of gives you a brief holiday from your worries. And uh, yeah, you are intrinsically worthwhile and things will change. I sincerely, well, they always do, don't they? Even that's the nature of entropy. Right. I'm going to say goodbye now, uh, except to hand over to the lovely chat. This is me talking with Adrian Tchaikovsky. When can you remember first getting the sense that stories were something special? I mean, I think it's that's just been a part of me for as long as there has been. And obviously, when you're a kid, you have imaginative play for that. And then I got very, very heavily involved in um, role-playing games uh, when I was in secondary school. And as I was usually the games master, that that's an enormous um, sort of use of, of storytelling. Can Can you remember how you how you kind of what what was your what was your initiation into that how was it how did you first um because once you've played for a while and, and stuff it's sort of it's almost kind of second nature but um for anyone outside of that world it can seem a slightly sort of uh eldritch and esoteric uh form and i wondered how did you how did you you know go from not having ever played at all to first sitting around a table and essentially making up a world i mean when so when i was when i was at school in my uh the first or second year of secondary school so this would have been about um you know age 12 say it was a thing that was going on it was something that older kids were doing in the in the classroom and you know if you hung around and listened to what was going on eventually someone would say do you want to draw you know do you want a character do you want to take part in it but at the same time the sort of gaming that's going on at that sort of level and certainly the sort of gaming i was doing for the next several uh, the next few years wasn't didn't really have much in the way of storytelling to do with it. it was more a kind of a strategic game where it was almost games master versus players and it's it's basically to do, you know rolling the dice following the rules going around a map killing monsters getting treasure that kind of thing it's the sort of thing that um is very well served by games board games like gloomhaven for example, um, mm. that have come come along later, and it's not it's not what I would think of these days as a, a role playing experience. Um, but as as time goes on, went on certainly as I fell in with a group of regular players, so that rather than just playing a game with whoever turns up at the time at you know at lunchtime, you've got the same people with the same characters, and that sense of continuity, story kind of inevitably accretes around what you're doing even if you don't have much of a sense of the world at the start or anything like that, and you're just doing this very generic, oh, there are orcs and dragons and so forth and a magic sword, those characters and the particular things that happen to them and the personality of the players will create a story somewhat thinly stretched over the bones at first. And then as you go on, certainly the sort of role-playing that we we all preferred, the story becomes more and more dominant until the, the, you know, the story, the finding out the exploration of the world and the creation of the world is is the most important thing and i the various things that i games mastered gave me that kind of um that love of creating worlds and you know worlds with a lot of detail and um factions and personalities and so forth that translates very very readily into um into writing i mean the thing what jumped 
what jumped me to actually the idea of actually writing um books was a direct um connection with the role-playing hobby because um i ran into the dragonlance novels by uh bison hickman um which were a novelization of someone's dungeon and dragons campaign and and a very good one actually I'm, I'm still very fond of the um of the series but that was this sudden kind of light bulb of oh wait a minute people can do this it's not some sort of magic thing done by weird weird entities that have no real connection with my life this is someone who does a thing that i do and then they have gone off and written this book and they said well obviously if they can do it then maybe i can do it and as it turned out, I couldn't uh, for many years because I was because writing is a craft and you have to kind of work at it. But after you know a long time of of writing what one hopes are progressively better and better books, um, you know, eventually it kind of it kind of clicked, and I was writing stuff that was good enough to get interest from publishers. Can you rem? I, I know sort of describing stuff that happens around the table while role playing, and I, as I understand, you still do do tabletop role playing, and that's still part of your life but um i, I realize that talking about campaigns or games is a little bit like describing a road trip you know to a certain extent you had to be there but i wonder if um you talked about how sort of like story accretes and i wonder if you can recall any arcs or any moments from those games as you were growing up that, that you thought at the time or even now looking back were just where something happened story-wise that you were like oh wow that felt like that was the juice that was storytelling that was surprised me or took me aback or you came up with an idea or a cool bit of world building that you're like oh i'm quite happy with that um oh blimey um it's these things kind of tend to tend to mash down into some fairly undifferentiated strata in the memory so it's it's hard to i mean there was um and we played a star wars role-playing game for a while for example and there were moments in that. So, for example, my my uh, my character in that was in a, in a matter of extreme desperation. I had the the dreaded thermal detonator. I was surrounded hmm. by the bad guys. Things had gone extremely badly. So I thought, I am just going to. I'll go out with a bang. I will throw this thing at my feet, and we will <laughs> perish together. And the dice rolled, and every all of the bad guys were obliterated, and I basically walked away with nothing but minor scratches. And then that became this kind of legendary event that the character was known for. Despite, you know. And you know, this is, I mean, there are things like, you know, there are, there are diceless role-playing games, and there's definitely a trend for, for role-playing games where uh, the system takes a back seat to the storytelling now, so that it's all very much kind of collaborative um, storytelling rather than game per se but you do get these moments when you have a <laughs> let's just say a rule set that imperfectly models reality um, as all rule sets do hmm. um where these these utterly random things happen but because they happen within the rules that's fine and so you get these these larger than life story beats purely through um random chance that then become the backbone of a character or um or, or a, a gaming campaign. Yeah, I wonder, sometimes I've found that those, it's like that the dice is almost like a, I spoke to a, 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 a friend of mine who studies magic on here, and he was talking about dice in role-playing games being almost like a divination device that also are good for creativity as well, because they break up that kind of sense of, what is the most plausible thing to happen here instead of, and just and just give it over to this extra player around the table 
Um, I, I wonder, like, has, uh, I, I wonder whether you you feel like when you come to your writing, um, you've ever felt slightly constrained that you, you you have to sort of you don't have the excuse of well the dice said it happened. You know, you have to make it sort of more plausible because when the dice do it, you have got that alibi almost of turning to it and going, it wasn't wasn't me. <laughs> I mean, I whilst i don't think i've got there i can absolutely see that that can be the case i mean one of the things um i've been in a writing group before and we had kind of um effectively kind of random prompts for stories as part of our our process and that was always very useful because it does it puts you a bit out of your comfort zone and it means you're writing stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of i've obviously found some way of substituting for that in my creative process i'm very aware of the possibility of just going around the same fishbowl and it's certainly the case that and as with most writers that i will often come back to ideas that have fascinated me because i've got a new take on them so you there you know which is why most writers will have themes in their work because those are the things that interest them and those are the things that they keep sort of picking at there's obviously i think the fact that i read quite a lot and the fact that i yeah, I, I, I seem to have some good way of taking in inspiration and information, and then filing it and, st- and um, storing it for later use, I think is what I'm using as that kind of external prompt now. But um, I can I can certainly see um, a possible time where I'll just say, right, I, you know, I'll have a book idea and I'll think, well, this is basically the same as that other book I did. And at that point, I'll, I may well need to seek out some sort of external sort of prompt to, to, uh, to freshen things up again. Yeah, I, su- I suppose life throws a series of random prompts at you all the time, doesn't it? Like that's the nature of being in the in the world is that things happen. You see, you know, a dog in a cape when you're outside and go, oh, oh okay, <laughs> that's in my brain now. I think the the one of the one of the the, the subconscious skills that um, writers build up. I think it's it's obviously everyone. Thing is, we we live in an age where we're bombarded with inspiration. We're bombarded with prompts. We're constantly getting that. Um, that flood of information in. I think one of the things the writers and other creative people develop is the ability to process that in a way that is then sort of use, useful for um, creative endeavors. So you take stuff in and you filter it and you pick out this is something that has potential, that is something potential, and then you store those or note them down. And it's a matter of, um, there's a, I cannot for the life of me remember, it's a short story I read decades ago. <laughs> But someone goes, there are these aliens who can basically rework your brain so that not so that you interact with the world in a different way. You're seeing the same things, but you you process them in a particular context that's useful. In this case, it's a comedian who's basically run out of material. And they will say, fine, we will basically let you see the world in a way that you will always see what the funny side of something is. You will <laughs> always see where the joke is in any given thing. Um, which is a fascinating idea, and I, but I think it is something that writers um, develop, and I suspect a lot of people in different ways develop, so that you you process the world in a way that is relevant to the tasks you need to to perform. And in this case, it's the way that's relevant. You see something, and you see right there is a story in that. Here is the story from that, and it, it happens all the time. You know, just chance mentioned something on social media or something you like you say something you see in the street or whatever you think there is a story that that is right let's let's crank that up to 11 and that is that is a science fiction story can you talk about this um process that you went through of wanting to get stuff onto the page and create you know uh, a, a, a a novel um that led to you 
ultimately getting published? I realise I'm talking that's quite a broad question because we're talking over a long period of time. But what do you think were the um, things that you learned that, uh, if anything, that allowed you to finally produce something that someone, that a publisher said, yeah, we're going to take, we want to have a go with this? I basically went about things what I suspect what I think is probably the slowest and most methodical way. Um, and since getting there, I kind of appreciate there are probably are shortcuts that a different person could have utilized, but I don't think I could have done. So basically what I did was I wrote a lot of stuff and I read a lot of stuff and I kept writing and I kept reading. And I can look at some of my earlier books and say, yeah, that is the book I wrote after reading this particular author, because I can see that I'm kind of trying to do the thing that they did. And each book I wrote was just sort of stylistically better. I mean, one of the things I've never been short of is ideas. I'm quite, I, I still, even way back to the early, my early, very, very Dungeons and Dragonsy sort of stuff that I was writing, the ideas are there, the characters are there, but the execution is not. And that's the difficult bit. But as things went on, my writing style improved. It was improving in a very organic way. I didn't go to court, go on courses or, you know, take a creative writing um, degree or anything like that. I just wrote and read and kind of bootstrapped myself uh, up that way. And one, I mean, one of the things I did after getting a few books out is that I went through the back catalogue. I thought, well, I had all those ideas. I can have all these other books I've read that got rejected at the time, but now I'm kind of got my foot in the door. Obviously, these books can just come out of there. And um, what turned out to be the case is the two books I had written before, Empire and Black and Gold, were salvageable in that I had to rewrite them quite a bit, but they are both now in print. The book I wrote before that was just, it would have required so much work to bring it up to speed. Uh, and also I had frankly pirated some of the ideas for one of the Shadows of the App books that it wasn't really salvageable. And, and you know, just despite the fact that while I was submitting these books over the course of basically 15 years, um, I was convinced that they were gold dust. I was going, looking back on them, I think, actually, no, I was writing stuff that, you know, I can absolutely see why these books were getting just turned down without, with a, with a form letter, because while the ideas are there, are there, the actual writing skill is not. Which is, which I suppose is quite positive in a way, because it means that you'd moved sufficient distance that actually now you looked back at it. Certainly I was, I was improving. I mean, the thing is, if, there are two things that I could have had and didn't have that would probably have shortcut the whole business considerably. I mean, no guarantees in this trade, but I mean, first of all, I ha- I was certainly not then, and I still have problems now with with basically dealing with criticism. It's something you've got to be you've got to be able to accept criticism because that is what editors do. And editors frequently know what they're talking about, and you always kick back saying, "No, no my 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 beautiful story," um, but you've got to listen to what they're telling you and look at what they're, you know, what the, what the, the marks are on the page, um, because generally it makes the thing better. But certainly I was very convinced of my own genius as an inspiring writer. And I would almost certainly not have been terribly cooperative with anyone who's trying to help me. And, but if, if, if I had been a more reasonable person at the time, then quite possibly that would have shaved some years off because I, my style would have improved more quickly than just doing it by hand. Um, the other thing, with if I'd been socially adept, I've certainly seen people. I mean, I never went to um, conventions and things before I was published, and a good job too. Uh, I know a lot of people who have gone to conventions and they are able to hold a human conversation with people and just 
get on socially. And if you do that, you know, you will meet editors and you will meet agents and quite possibly someone will say, yeah, you seem like a nice person. Send me your manuscript. I am not a socially adept person, uh, especially in a situation where my kind of status in a group is uncertain. Um, and I would have think of, I would have made an absolute nightmare of myself and probably been blackballed out of the entire industry <laughs> as that really annoying guy who keeps trying to give you a manuscript without even introducing himself. So I, I'm kind of glad I didn't go down that route. But if you are, if you can walk that particular walk, it's probably an, again a good way of of jumping the queue to a certain extent. Can you talk, because you mentioned Empire in Black and Gold, and sort of you alluded to Shadows of the Apt, which can you talk a a bit about partly just to give sort of a bit of framing for anyone who's not dived into those books yet so they can kind of like get a sense of what they're about but (laughs) the other thing one thing that I am going to once we've talked about that a bit that I would really like to hear from you is I'm just aware that you know those books you, you you've had ever since you were first published this remarkably sort of consistent run of of you know writing books and getting them finished and as someone who struggles so much with kind of like procrastination and self-criticism as I do I'd really love to hear you know once we took you sort of talked a bit about what they're about just how you managed kind of once you started to I guess be so consistent which sounds like damning with faint praise to go, well, you know, as an author, you're very consistent. Uh, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing you long to have on the front of a book. Damning is, damning is prolific, which is the <laughs> word I get a lot, which always, always seems to carry connotations of low, low quality. But uh... No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a genuine, it's a gen, it'll be a genuine question. But first off, just to, to sort of put it in context so people who haven't read them know what we're talking about, can you talk about... Um, uh, Empire of Black and Gold was the the first novel that you had in that series, and Shadows of the Apt as a sort of overall arc. Sure, I mean basically, so it is um, a big old fantasy series. Um, the my very explicit aim in writing it was I wanted to write something that was ticking all the boxes of a fantasy series, whilst also being quite different to the standard run of medieval dragons and things that was you know, re- remained very much the dominant paradigm. And in this, I think I, I pretty much hit, ex- hit where I was aiming square on. It's a world where all the people are people, but they kind of have access to insect powers. So there are, they're called the Kindon, and there are Beetle Kindon, and there are all the Wasp Kindon, who are kind of like the big bad, for, certainly for the early books, and Mantis, Mantis and Spider, and all these things. And each culture has a certain stereotype associated with it which is not necessarily borne out when you actually meet the people there i one of the things i was very aware of i did not want to do the kind of the fancy monoculture good evil thing so all of the um can have a lot of variation and the goods and bads tend to be are social rather than racial which i think is is almost like minimum due diligence for a fancy writer these days as well as that you have a whole bunch of like steampunkish technology and then as well as that you have the fact that half the people in the world can't use the technology because they are the inapt as as of shadows of the apt the title um the inapt um kindon are still able to use the what magic there is left, which the apt characters are effectively psychologically incapable of believing in. And so you've got this weird sort of conceptual block which divides the characters. 
which division is not in any way the the good bad division of the books um because you get characters of both types on both sides of the all the various clashes that are going on and it's a great big geopolitical thing there's an empire there's um an old magic there's um a very wide range of different cultures and characters i mean it's a 10 book series which is a crazy um enterprise i don't think i'd ever be allowed to do now um it's got a cast of thousands. Uh, the Ben Allen, the audiobook narrator, with the audio, the audiobooks came out, I think, last year, and has done a phenomenal job with, <laughs> frankly, this this absurdly large cast of characters. So, but um, yes, insects basically. It's insects and it's steampunk and it's um, what I hope is a a a very nuanced look at various sort of societies and clashes of ideology and things like that. Did you have any um, explicit uh i know sometimes when i've had ideas it's maybe been i've been i don't know like maybe i've been reading about history or something i'm not suggesting <laughs> clearly like i know i'm not suggesting you've uh you've like reskinned uh, like in a one for one basis i understand that like when there's magic and stuff but, but there are there are there are actually there are there are two really quite different historical um inspirations feeding into this the original setup that you get is act is based on a kind of a classical world so that um the wasps are kind of a macedonia uh, and alexander's macedonia who are kind of exploded out and from very relatively barbaric beginnings and just taken over an enormous chunk of the world um so that makes the spider kingdom basically persia and it makes the the main theater of the of the book, the uh, the lowlands, uh, various Greek city states. So, um, I mean, it kind of comes down to one Athens and about half a dozen Spartas um, <laughs> because of the be the Beatles and the Ant Kingdom. The actual because uh, one of the things that the series does that fancy doesn't often do is you have a a the war drives a lot of technological innovation because of all of this steampunk business you've got going on. So that you start off with uh, a readily kind of relatively comprehensible wars with infantry and crossbows and things like that although because a lot of people can fly the battles work really quite differently to the to historical um because it's a clash between two very mechanistic um cultures with the beetles and the wasps you end up with things like there are aircraft dogfights airships um bombing raids um mechanized trains all all manner of stuff that uh, and and especially what's called what they call the snap bow which is their kind of effectively it's a super powered air rifle which which revolutionizes um ranged combat and you you get to see that moment where the you know the last great infantry charge against massed um you know effectively massed muskets or massed massed rifles and how badly that goes and the the way battles are fought changes quite markedly and one of the things i wanted to do i wait i'm going massively off topic but forgive me for that one of the one of the things i wanted to do in the series fantasy tends towards a circular plot line so everything's lovely the dark lord arise uh, the dark lord arises they fight the dark lord he's defeated everything is lovely again if that kind of the restor it is the return of the king it is the restoration of the status quo in a very substantial way um, I wanted to write a very dynamic story which had a developmental through flow so that where you are at the end, politically and magically and technologically, is not just where you were at the beginning. 
um, every, you know, the fact that all these things have happened has changed the world immeasurably and you're not just going to put all the toys back in the box. Can I ask how, just following on from that slightly, because it's really fascinating to me, how do you, because you've talked about how ideas have not, you know, that the world is in in many ways an abundance of ideas and that's not, the, the problem has never been a paucity of ideas. And, you know, you talking about that, there's so many ways that you could take, you know, the broadest ideas about civilization and technological change and different civilizations the tectonic plates of them butting up against each other and what happens along those fault lines how do you then stop yourself from just getting washed away in this deluge of possibilities and oh i want to have hang on i can't have we can't uh, is does it make sense to have walled cities anymore if people can fly how does this affect this what do i do now like how do you how have you managed to like stick you know uh, plant your flag somewhere and say this is where the story is going to begin and how do you choose because I can see how and I know from my own experience as a writer that can just become <laughs> like a brain maze that you get trapped in forever because you you could start anywhere and so you start nowhere I mean there's always a certain amount of material that I, I you know there are always places I wanted to get to um, in the books that I never did um, which is why there are four books of short fiction set there and there's still places i've never even written about that i know are out there um i start with the world when i write that's that's my main thing i mean especially when i'm when i'm writing fantasy because i i feel that the the thing that the fantasy and science fiction genres really have to offer readers is the unusual nature of their settings and so my prime goal in writing reading in writing a book is i wish to take people to this world and show them around it and yes i will need some characters and a plot in order to act as the vehicle for that but the characters and the plot arise out of that world so i will sit down i'll create the world i'll get a really good sense for it i'll sort of i'll be quite immersed in it and that will tell me what the plot will be because i will look at the world and say, right where is the interesting thing where is the where the crisis where is the friction where what is generating the story in this world and the characters will arise very naturally out of that because they're right. Who are who are the people? Um, what does the what is the person like? He might come from this culture or that culture, um, and has some connection to what's going on. So everything comes. Yeah, if I've done my job right, everything comes very organically out of the world, and the story is about the world. Effectively, the world does isn't there to serve the story for me. Um, the world is there to uh, the, the story is there to to showcase and show off the world. I'm aware this this is by no means a majority thing amongst yeah you know, with writers. I'm certainly not the only one, but there are a lot of writers who simply I want to tell this story about this character, and they will make up the world as it goes along as the best vehicle for the story they want to tell. So you can base you know you can you can come at this from from either either direction and you get the same kind of result in the middle but a lot i think it's just how how your mind works and how how you are best equipped to uh to kind of put the jenga blocks up well i i find that really refreshing actually because i i often you know if if someone asks me about a fantasy novel i've read i think i often naturally start by explaining the setting rather than the characters I'm seeing 
go through it. Um, and so I'm kind of glad you've said that because I think it's important um, that we remember there's more than one way to approach a novel. And uh, if there is a standard way, then quite often there's a niche or a way of doing it differently that will satisfy a whole group of readers in a different way. And I I, I really like that, that, that you know, y- y- you feel like initially part of the point of your books or at least your your, your fantasy is to give people read the reader just a chance to hang out there mm. and this i mean i think this is one reason why a lot of um fantasy series are particularly enduring it's uh it's not simply that we like the character although we do it's just that the world itself um is sufficiently skillfully crafted that it becomes a real place in the mind i mean i think um, a lot of people feel that way about say middle earth or Narnia even, or places like that. But then it's just, there isn't any other genre that does that really quite the same. I mean, I suppose, you know, you can get a sense of this historical place or this um, this um, sort of foreign place described in a book, you know, a, a particular depiction of Paris or Vienna or something like that can, can feel very real. But the ability to make a world that is completely um, exotic completely fictional in a way beyond simply a depiction of a real place uh, and make that real to the the reader is really quite special do you think that that direction of coming uh, at it um arose in part from your role-playing background which is a format which intrinsically needs to build worlds first and then people supply the characters because you were talking about star wars for example playing that and you folks supplied your characters to move through. I know the Star Wars series famously has, you know, no one could accuse it of not having famous characters in it, but you, it also has a world that you wanted to explore. Yeah, I mean, and there, the Star Wars show, show highlights really an interesting division. I mean, first of all, yeah, the, the, the answer to that question, the first question is absolutely 100% yes. This, this comes from coming at it from a role-playing directive. And I feel one of the big things you get doing that, one of the big advantages you get is when you are creating a, a setting for a role-playing game, you do it in of, of, of a necessity in more detail than a writer necessarily needs to go to because you're doing it for characters you do not control. Yeah. You can't just say, yeah, the characters are going to go here and do this. The characters can go anywhere. You need to know what is beyond the horizon in every direction. Yeah, you can't say, don't look, don't look there. Don't, don't, you don't need to, don't speak to this person. And so you have a much better sense of the world as a living thing and as a reactive thing um, than you would necessarily do if you were purely making a world for a, a kind of a, you know, a tramline story where the characters are just going to go from A to Z and stop at a variety of stations on the, along the way. And that gives you a much more, a much better sense of a living world. You can, there is a dichotomy in Star Wars. So, and this is very much expressed basically, is it, is Star Wars the Skywalker saga or is Star Wars a universe where big events are happening that just happen to include people called Skywalker? And it shows you can do this both ways. I mean, my way is, you know, it's the universe. I'm interested in the Star Wars universe. I'm not remotely interested in, dynasties in promised kind of um messiah figures who are the be all and end all of what the universe is about and that kind of i find that kind of storytelling reductive and i find it problematic because it is that historical idea of well not everyone gets to be a hero 
these characters are heroes and frequently it is because they are of a certain heritage and everyone else is only really there to carry a spear and probably get killed in some large battle somewhere and that is very much sort of storytelling as it's come down to us via you know and fed into things like the great man school of history where a small number of people are important capital i and everyone else is just part of a cheering mob who can go be sent over the trenches to um charge the machine guns um that's a i mean this is a genuine real world problem with the way that important people get other people to see them and the sooner the human race can wean itself off that the better therefore if we're writing fantasy series let's write fantasy series that are not just about uh big man with sword uh, with sword hooray let's write fantasy stories about or big man with with laser sword hooray if you want to go star, star wars mm. let's write um books about a wider spectrum let's write books about people who are not in you know wearing the hero hat just because they were born into a particular family or whatever because that that particular concept kind of gets more odious to me as time goes on and as i as you kind of you know you look from the story to reality to um how people would actually like you to view history and even current affairs this is could you give an example of um from some ways that you've because you've you've got i mean one way that you get around that is by often having quite large uh, and diverse casts so we get lots of different we get lots of characters you know at the at the sort of at the, at the kind of basic level we see the world we experience the world um via lots of different characters reacting to it um what how, how does can you i just wonder if you if i could get you to sort of explore that concept a bit more like because the the tendency you were talking about when you kind of like you build a world then you see where the fault lines are and then that naturally leads you to the characters you can see why even if someone isn't you know even if you're not naturally drawn towards the idea of uh you know dynasties and uh people being destined to rule um you can see why that logic might lead you to say kings generals kind of the people in power as being the natural sharp end of those conflicts can you maybe discuss some other places those those really important conflicts can happen so we can get some different views of that yeah i mean i think if you if you're creating the world from the ground up I mean, you don't start with a king. The king is is, is potentially an end process of um, how your society works. So, you know, but first of all, if you're creating the ground up, you can quite possibly get to a point where you think, well, this isn't this isn't actually going to lead to kings. Um, uh, one of the things that Shadows of the Apt does is it has a lot of different governmental systems. Uh, it's not just like, yeah, there's this kingdom and that kingdom and the other kingdom and they have kings and the kings fight wars. It's just like, so, you know, there is an empire and then there is this weird, um, formless oligarchy that the spiders have and the beetles have a, like two thirds of a democracy and the ants have a, meritocratic dictatorship sort of system and all and then you have the the you have hereditary no uh nobility in the in the uh the common wheel up north and all this so all of these different systems are getting to play off against each other and some of them do well and some of them do not and you see yeah and all of them kind of take knocks and have and have obvious flaws and 
you see individuals within these sort of working within the system they've got for their own for their own advancement and advantage. But one of the thing, one of the, I mean, firstly, that tells you actually the kings and so forth. They are not these great men type figures because you've got all of the stuff you've already worked out. You know, all right. So you have, yeah, the major antagonist in the first few books of the Shadows of the Up series. He is the Emperor of the Wasps. That's fine. You do meet him. He has um, his own drive and insecurities, and certainly when he says jump, a large army charges about and 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 stomps on people. But you also see all the people around him. You see his advisors and his generals and the all of these different schemes and you see individual soldiers and you see um you know there's a maverick um artificer who is basically just really interested in making the absolute best weapons he can because he's kind of in love with the theory of that and obviously that has a major impact on the way that the battles go but that's not actually what he's after. And, and you know, they're a fairly lowly character who is a very, very good engineer, has considerably more impact on the future of the world than the Emperor of the Wasps because he invents a thing which suddenly revolutionizes how you fight a war. And so I think the, the dominance of King's kind of school of fantasy comes when people aren't thinking as, as enough about the world. I mean, this is one reason why, I mean, I was talking, I threw about, I was banding about the phrase "return of the king" uh, before, and, and I think Tolkien is, to a certain extent, um, someone who is very happy with the idea of, um, you know, bloodlines and destinies and so forth. But Tolkien created a very, very detailed world. And I mean, I mean, for Tolkien, I mean, technically, talk for Tolkien, the language was the thing, but the world was also the thing, and the he also did the thing where the you know, the story of Lord of the Rings arises out of his world and his world's history. And it's really just like the last phase of this very long story that he was very interested in that we, you know, that was mostly published posthumously. But he also had that, that sense of the big living world, which is why we have the hobbits, which is why we have a variety. I mean, all right, three out of the four hobbits in Lord of the Rings are kind of posh still, but they are not <laughs> the promised prince. Bilbo was not destined to find the ring. He just happened to find the ring and all of these events sort of fall out from that and there is although he does end up kind of trotting around with his little party of princes that's kind of not what it's about and unfortunately a lot of fancy that followed on from that just basically saw a ah, party of princes and you get um and so it's everyone is either a prince or they have a capital d destiny that they are the person who can do this because they are special and magic and i know a lot of people love that thing and i am not amongst them because i feel it it's like i say it's, it's this weirdly reductive trope where you're either born a hero or you're not a hero whereas i just like it's for me it's far more about you know the event a, a sequence of events means this person however mundane they are suddenly becomes prominent i mean the fancy book i've got coming out in december which is city of last chances the first one i first fancy i've done in an age and something i had an inordinate amount of fun writing um it is all about ordinary people um in a city an occupied city where a revolution is brewing and it's about people trying not to be the protagonist of a fancy novel <laughs> because it's dangerous and they are just they are generally regular people you have um yeah there's a student and there's a kind of a criminal thug and there's a pawnbroker and there is an innkeeper and they are just basically trying to get by as the world falls around um falls apart around them 
And I found that a really, really fascinating thing to write because you are dealing with simultaneously very low stakes because it is just like there is this person, they are not very important. But at the same time, there is this person, they only have one life and they really don't want to get hung by the occupiers. And therefore for them, the stakes are as high as they're ever going to get. I'm going to sort of ask a deliberately provocative question now, um, but it's one that I suppose I've, I've often sort of sputtered, outraged when in response to when people have asked me. But um, with something like, let's, you know, moving on to City of Last Chances, I've sometimes had, uh, and maybe they're being a bit mischievous, but friends who write, you know, literary fiction or general fiction go, well, if you want to explore those issues, why don't you just write something set in the real world? You know, why do you need, why do you need, you know, almost like I'm being sort of difficult. They're like, why, what does it need to be fantasy though, Tim? You know, why couldn't you write something? So I, I just would, I'm rather sort of mischievously going to throw that question back to you and say, why, why for you, did, do you want to explore those themes because um, what you've just described, actually, you didn't mention any of the fantasy elements, rather the character-led elements, right? So why for you um, did, did, is fantasy and science fiction the uh, medium and direction and style? I don't know if they count as any of those things, really, but um, that you are telling these stories in. I'm obviously very, very deeply in the fantasy genre. I mean, I I tend to read only really science fiction and fantasy Um and with with a few with a few exceptions, I find that books that lack that don't have a speculative element don't tend to hold my interest. So there's obviously something very intrinsic to the idea of stepping beyond the mundanity of the real world that attracts me. Um, at the same time, to take a slightly flippant approach to it, that I don't think there's anything in a lit fiction book that you can't do in a fantasy book. You can have all the resonance and character development and pathos and tragedy and depth in a fantasy book and also dragons. <laughs> so why would, why, if you can have that and also X really interesting fantasy thing, why wouldn't you? Why would, why would you just say, well, I'm going to set this in Bogdan Regis, um, in 1985? And the hero is going to be an estate agent. I mean, I, I mean, I, I am exaggerating on all on all fronts. But even so, I'm just like, why, why would you, why would you not have a speculative aspect? Why would you not have that extra level of interesting? And also, I mean, I, in City of Last Chances, someone gets fed to a giant centipede, and that's not a thing you can do in Bogdan Regis in 1985. <laughs> Although. I would be totally up for something set in Bognor in 1985 that still had giant carnivorous centipedes. Like, I think that those two slammed together. You never mention it. You just tell it as if it's an absolutely faithful, um, <laughs> you know, real, real world setting. And it's just a thing that happens in Bognor And you just say... <laughs> I'm sure there are some bed and breakfasts in Bognor Regis that have basements like that. <laughs> um, can you... One thing I wanted to ask, uh, we sort of touched on it, but about your, as you've gone from being someone who created really for your own amusement and for the people who sit around your table playing um, role-playing games, to someone who's got a lot of readers who love your work, who really enjoy it, who uh, sort of very faithfully will come back to it again and again. How have you dealt with 
whether it's I don't know if it's changed your experience of writing at all but having essentially an audience and people who maybe come to your work with expectations who maybe are coming to say a novel later in a series having read the previous ones and enjoyed them and now maybe have their own ideas um has it made it easier to know that there's people out there who enjoy your work has it made it harder because there's a sense of pressure and expectation what's your relationship been as you've found a home and an audience for your work i mean a bit of all of that to be honest i mean it's worth noting that uh, so creating for role-playing games is never just creating for yourself you're always creating with the expectation that other people are going to experience the thing you're making and i think that's very important and i even way way back when i was just starting off and was a, as it turned out many many years from getting anywhere within in the trade everything i wrote was with the expectation i would like someone to read this this is for the consumption of someone other than myself. And I think that, I mean, I know um, a lot of people do just start off writing for their own pleasure. And that's, you know, a lot of the fan fiction community works that way. And that obviously works for a lot of people. But for me, the idea of other people reading it was probably a bit of a bit essential because it meant I had to be aware of how it looked to someone who wasn't me, or at least try to be. And it's, it, you know, it's not something I, I, I've necessarily been terribly good at all the time, but it's, it's there. As, as it's gone on, Pressure and expectations have been, after Children of Time took off as it did, and and did so sort of bizarrely well, certainly it means that certain books come with a bit of added pressure, so that the children or books, I feel like, that is like the flagship series, that's the one that, if I'm going to write another book in that series, I have to have a very specific kind of idea to fit in with that. Because I feel that there, I've got a, the, my largest readership there, and that I've got to... Um, hit a certain number of a certain sort of set of targets with that series i mean one of the other things that that i've that's come up as i've gone on is basically from my start point as a straight white male author my earlier books you know amongst the non-published ones everyone's kind of white and almost everyone is kind of male and it's and, you know it's that kind of thing and as thankfully by the time shadow of the apps came out a lot of those sort of strictures had been i'd become aware that you know maybe i was writing fairly stale stuff on those fronts and as i've gone on you kind of come away yeah you've got you've got a diverse readership and it is genuinely important for people to i mean this is again it comes back down to only certain people can be the hero it's genuinely important for people of a variety of demographics to see that yes you here is someone like you doing hero stuff. You know, people should get the opportunity to see that. And it's something that we are a lot better at now than we, than we have been in the past. Although I'm sure there's plenty of work to do, but that's also a level, a type of, um, reader expectation. And it's, and it's, it's worth it. I think that there is, um, there's, there's going to be a kind of a lobby who basically start throwing around the W word and saying, Oh, you're just taking boxes and things like that. But actually one of the things that, comes out of uh, that, you know, even as early and early as Shadows of the App, one of the things that comes up is actually when you start to make your world more diverse, when you start to make your characters more diverse, you have more voices, you have more different perspectives, the whole thing just becomes more interesting. It's actually a good in and of itself on an, art, on a, uh, an artistic level, as well as actually being a social good. Can you talk... Um... I wondered if you could just uh, r reflect a bit on um, 
because we didn't we ended up not getting to it um and i just would be really interested to know i know sort of process questions can uh some you know sometimes they imply someone has a process and for different people have different ways of doing it so i'm not you know i'm not asking for a full itinerary but i wondered if you have a set because you have you know matt you've you've managed to produce across a range of uh i guess adjacent styles and genres you have managed to <laughs> you know write your books without completely uh with, without running out of steam and i just wondered i i know you can only speak for yourself but i wonder if you've got a sense of how you've managed to keep you know are there any techniques you've learned for when you hit a massive plot snag when you suddenly look at what you're doing and go on oh, I don't think this has worked out how I wanted it to, and I'm not sure this is good. You know, if you when you when you reach di- meet difficulties, do you have ways of working through it? How have you managed to get a process that so far seems to have worked really well for you? I mean, I'm going to say when things go wrong, I do not have any, a good fix for it. Um, the my the thing that tends to save me is that early period of planning is that when I write something, I tend to be very familiar with the world, which means everything kind of fits with everything else and everything works logically in the same framework. And I also plan out, the, in most cases, let me say, I will plan out the plot chapter by chapter and beat by beat. And so that early prep work means that I don't go off the rails, except when I do. And when I do, I'm very much at sea because because I am a planner, I'm not very good when I suddenly find that the plan hasn't worked. And what I generally, you know, I will generally be in the situation where oh, I, I have a feeling this isn't working, but I'm just going to power on through. And then three chapters later, I went, yeah, that really wasn't working. And now I've got to unpick five chapters of book because there is a fundamental problem with the way the book is going. And I need to work out how to do it. And at that point, it's a laborious process of where well, I, I will try a variety of things and you know, up to and including I am going to basically summarize the book to this point and say, well, logically at that point, what happens next? Just to order everything in my head. Um, so I, my, my, my fix for this is really as much as possible. Prevention is better than cure and planning is the way I, I prevent these things from happening, but they certainly have happened and it's a real pain when they do. Can I, can I ask, uh, I'm going to ask some sort of slightly gnarly, crunchy, um, uh, process questions now, but when you say uh, you plan it, what does a plan look like for you? Um, how long is it? What kind of level of granularity are you going into? So usually it's a word document. It's, um, two to three pages long. It is literally chapter one, beat, 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 chapter two, beat, 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 chapter three, beat, beat. And, you know, this is after I've created the world. So it is, you know, I'm, I don't need to sort of define any terms at this point, but it is literally these things happen and these things happen and these things happen. And the plan, you know, this is not rigid and frequently I'll get to a point saying, right, I've got this, these things happening in this chapter, but the chapter is way too long already. So this is going to have to be two chapters or this bit, I'll move to another point in the book or things like that. But it is, it really is as simple as it's just a word, a, a list of things in sequence and then i will write the book in the sequence of things that are going to appear in the page with a few exceptions where um so in a couple of the children books i've got effectively alternating timelines and i basically found i've got to write the past first so that the future will follow it and make sense and then there's a whole extra editing pass where you're looking at each bit thing right i what has been revealed so far and or what is thematically going on in the book that the next 
bit can pick up on and and having to kind of tinker with things a bit to make sure that the 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 interspersed sections then follow each other on um which is mechanically complicated but turned out to be really the only way i could run it but normally normally if i'm right if i'm writing a book that just runs from a to b then i will write everything in the order it'll it will meet the reader and when you say you know the world you've 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 you um how does that your process of coming to know the world is that done on the page how do you do that i will do a lot of prep ahead of time i will make notes i will uh sometimes even do like little concept sketches of things costumes or creatures or things like that uh, and you know there's probably about two-thirds of what the world is doesn't even doesn't end up in those notes but because i've made those notes it's come together in my head sure and then also frankly there are there there are times when i will just do a colossal info dump as part of the writing process i'll start off a chapter by doing two and a half pages of um oh god there's that bit at the beginning of the conan films where you know in the days before the oceans drank atlantis Mm. and i will but i will do that for two and a half pages and these people fought those people and then they and then all of that will either get cut by me before i submit it or it will most certainly get cut by the editor and in general, all of those details don't need to be there because they then got worked in later in more organically into things that characters say or just brief notes that turn up within the text. So that whole kind of undifferentiated bolus of world building is absolutely not really suitable for being in the in the in the book. But sometimes just writing it helps because it fixes those things in place in my mind. Yeah, how freeing! Like I can really see you're making the case for, you know as a even as a writing exercise writing that kind of portentous kind of star wars mo- crawl at the begin but if you do that um for yourself um you don't have to include it in the book but i can see how it's super helpful um and and i guess it sounds like when you've done those big info dumps and expositional dumps even if they don't end up in the book in that form they kind of give you permission and a sense of comp- confidence to have characters slyly allude to something that everyone knows about without you feeling like they have to talk about it in that awful form of exposition expositional dialogue where a character sort of says as you know and (laughs) this is it i mean and i mean one of the other things i would say there, there there seems to be a general allergy to exposition sometimes i mean and this is this is actually something i've noted particularly in um TV series. Um, there have been some sort of TV series which have had a, a certain burden of world building to deal with, and you've almost had this. Yeah, we're going to. This is the first episode. Here we are going to race through this origin story as quickly as possible and show you all of these events. And then I promise you, the actual story will start as soon as possible. But you just have to sit through this bit. And the thing is, you. It doesn't have to be a chore that sort of thing can actually be a pleasure and sometimes exposition direct to the reader is actually the most efficient way of doing things i mean there's an awful lot of children of time which is literally me in the guise of david attenborough space david attenborough talking to my readers about how these things work because you can't you know you literally can't have uh, you know there's one spider saying well as you know spider bob our anatomy works in these ways <laughs> because that is patently ridiculous and so sometimes it's just me as the you know, nature documentary narrator talking through what's happened with these spiders that they can do, you know, that they've got this big and can do these things when the ancestral spiders couldn't. And that's actually an enormous part of Children of Time. And obviously 
seems to work very well. So you don't actually have to be as allergic to the direct exposition as all that. And it can actually be fun to write and fun to read. That's something that I've sort of had to painfully learn, actually, is realising how much I like to read exposition when the thing it's expositing is um, feels interesting and relevant. Then I'm then I'm I'm like, oh, oh, this is cool. And what a relief that I'm not having to sort of uh, infer it through through not very good attempts at, at hinting at it in dialogue when we could have got this out of the way very quickly by just saying it. Um, yeah, I think it's I think that's a really good point because um, and I've been really guilty of of uh, of, of ha- having that allergy and thinking that good writing is only avoiding exposition and then discovering when I allow myself to expose it in certain places um, it's produced some of my best writing. And uh, yeah, I think that's really a really good point. Um, I wonder if um, you could just, uh, I suppose, like just to sort of, as we're kind of getting towards, I'm conscious of wanting to uh, honour your time. Um, I I wonder if um, you could talk about, uh, well, one, I, I realise we just, we haven't touched on it yet. I wonder if there's any... Um, bits of fantasy or science fiction that you've read either recently or over the years that you come back to um by other authors that as kind of like oh yes this is this is the juice this is doing something with the genre that i really enjoy that i really like whether it's directly influenced you or whether it's just something that you think i could never do that but it's amazing i wonder if you could just you know talk a bit about books you've loved as a book reader um, I am generally looking for the writers who do things I know I I don't do and I can't do, and writers who yeah you know, who who have that or or just ideas that are just particularly elegant and clever ideas. So um, I mean, as an example of that, I'm just finishing off um, the uh, Tamsin Muir's. I can't I think I've got that right name right. I'm just going to double check while I talk to you. Uh, Tamsin Muir's. Um, ninth series starting with Gideon the ninth okay yeah Tamsin Moore yeah thank you um they are unique and they are amazing and I've never come across anything quite like it and yeah I mean you can see a certain amount of DNA in them as to where this stuff has come from but the the combination of ideas and especially the the way she blends sort of two or three distinct corners of the genre into one completely new thing and with the most exquisite character work is is incredible and i i absolutely love it and similarly i've just read um rj quang's babel which is very much that was um has been the you know the talked about book at conventions um towards the you know the back end of this year and that is the the way the magic works and the way because you have a basic magic derived from linguistics but not in a just sort of hand wavy, oh yes, magic words sort of way. It's just like there is a, a really fascinating logic as to what is going on and why it works and then why it feeds into the the themes of the book as a whole. And it, that is absolutely brilliant. And then you've got um, things like um, R.J. Barker's uh, Bone Ship series, which is, you know, it's a fantasy, uh, fantasy it's kind of um, fantasy hornblower or... Um, that yeah, you know, sort of big ships things, except that it's it's big ships in a world with without wood. So it's set on these islands where every you know they have there is um and but 
it, it's almost it's, it's this fantastic um combining the familiar and the strange in one sentence is kind of the essence of speculative fiction and that's how this world works because it's giving us this kind of big ship's naval setup in some in a way we can you know in a master and command a way that we can recognize but that all of the building blocks that have led to it and they lead to it entirely logically within the world but they are all completely different um it's a world you know there is the the ships are not made of wood the societies that are producing these are by no means your kind of you know napoleonic war sort of real world societies everything is different and yet everything also leads to this this very visceral kind of shipboard naval combat sort of setup that um that rj's got going on um thank you that's really this made me really excited it's so lovely it's, oh, it's always i just always love hearing authors talk about books that they enjoy because it always sort of brings out such enthusiasm and it makes me excited about uh writing as well i, I wonder as like a super super kind of generic but i hope open enough to sort of allow you to sort of take it however you want um uh, are there any sort of uh, um have you got any advice for writers because like i i guess that's my broadest question we, uh, the listenership to the show lots of enthusiastic readers and a certain percentage of whom are also uh uh novice or grizzled veteran writers um and i just wondered if you if there's any when you know when you're talking to writers when you are being asked questions about how people can uh, continue with your writing are there any kind of craft based things that you that you think um people can take away and apply to their work um either big or very tiny that you found useful i mean it's it's, it's very very hard because those things that work for me do not necessarily work for I mean, the majority of other writers and things that work for those writers don't work for me. Every writer I've spoken to about, you know, how does your craft work has a different approach. And you can, you know, there are various kind of categories and boxes on various axes that you can put people in. But how the the sausage is made is different in each case, even though, you know, hopefully at the end you have something that looks like a sausage. I mean, I have kind of a standard tip for writers who are still trying to get into print certainly by you know i, um, I mean I, I don't know the first thing about self-publishing so don't come to me for that but people are trying to get published um you know the, the traditional route which is basically there is a colossal element of luck those editors who will process um submissions are snowed under have very little time um they look get very you know they will look at a thing and if it's not grabbing them immediately then they will go on to the next thing and even if it is grabbing them immediately you are needing to get the right person on the right day who has the right sort of gap in their schedule where they can go to marketing and say i would i'm quite interested in this what do you think i think we can sell it like this because that's how the business work these days and like i say you know there are ways of shortcutting this process somewhat and narrowing your odds but there is still going to be a colossal element of luck and that you cannot really control what you can control is what you're sending so you want to be sending something out that is solid and polished and interesting and yeah, you the, and the same. You know, make sure you've got a decent cover letter. Make sure you've got a decent um, synopsis. Make sure the package you are sending out is immediately accessible 
to a tired and overworked editor or sort of um, slash file reader who is not going to get much chance to go through it before they have to make the call and, and decide whether they're just going to go on to the next one. That you can control. That you kind of need to get down. And even then, I mean, in a, in a, in a gaming sense, it's basically like you're giving yourself the maximum number of dice to roll you are not guaranteed that you will roll a 20 on any of those dice but the more dice you've got the better chance you've got that makes a, that makes a lot that makes a, a lot of sense and I, I guess also from the story you've told us uh, as well um you know you you, you had, had a story you, i told you i did not do that for a long period sure but also but also you, yeah yeah but also you had various attempts and just because you um not been accepted with one you kept going and it sounds like from what you've said and i don't want to put words in your mouth but um in a way having that series that slightly sort of delayed um you know having a few knockbacks actually gave you time to kind of up your game and learn your craft in a way that meant when you did come out with something um it was almost it, it was all you were that was almost at the point where you were rolling kind of fistfuls of dice and um so in a way those knockbacks mean that when something does get published it'll be any the next thing will be a, a you know you'll have improved your craft that much further and so you'll be your work will be dropping onto the world from an even greater height i mean at the end of the day you cannot roll a 20 on a six-sided dice <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Adrian. I really, really enjoyed chatting to you. If, if um, folks want to, I'm going to, I'll link to your books in the show notes. So anyone listening, if you want to um, go and grab, including a pre-order link to City of Last Chances. So if anyone wants to go and grab, then just click in the show notes or, of course, uh, go to your local Bricks and Mortar bookshop. But um, uh, Adrian, if people want to um, find uh, you online, um, benevolently uh, in your public forums, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, so uh, I've got a website which is just adrianshokovsky.com which which is purely a, a writing site. I don't read blogs or anything like that, but if you go there, you can see links to all of the books and generally some news about what is coming up. So at the moment, for example, it's got the various bookshop events I'm doing around the country in December. Um I'm also, I mean, I'm currently on Twitter at at AppShadow, and obviously we're all waiting to see how that particular <laughs> platform is going to go. Um, but I am, I can be found there, um, or you can, or you can contact me through the, the contact form on the website. Or yeah, I mean, I'm sure there will be some other thing that comes along, but those two are my main, my main um, outlet at the moment. Awesome! Thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. No, uh, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a great pleasure. And for everyone listening, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.